I'm not broken. My brain is not broken. I am just who I am. And that's okay. Everybody probably feels broken now and again. Hello. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a fortnightly series looking at unfamiliar places around the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. has really dropped out in the last week or so, as I type this, we're into yet another day of mostly torrential rain. We even dabbled with the idea of putting the heating on, a task not helped by the fact the thermostat to the boiler, which I shouldn't need because in principle everything should be workable through the boiler itself, a fact which confused me for an hour or so when I couldn't get the boiler to fire up, despite the boiler instructions saying it should be automatic, didn't have instructions with it, and the instructions that exist are for a completely different one. No matter, a quick download, a few button pushes, and everything works fine. The flat doesn't have a tumble dryer and no real place to efficiently put one, which is irking my flatmate a little. Why do European homes not have tumble dryers, and when they do, they're shit, she asks. And we're getting into the stage where hanging stuff on the line in the lawn outside, something I've never seen anyone else do in the time I've been in this flat, isn't going to be that effective. I hope the weather isn't too bad for the rest of October, though. I have a couple of trips away which are likely to involve being outdoors for a fair time. In mid-October I'm headed back to Nottinghamshire to celebrate a very old friend finally getting around to asking her boyfriend to marry her. The wedding's planned for about this time next year and I'm going to be a bridesmaid. Well, what did she say? Her wedding theme will be quite fantasy adventure and she wants us to be shield of various styles and concepts so I'm sure that the warlock wood elf from my fantasy adventure novel Work in Progress will make an appearance because this is one of my friends, and few of my friends do things in any way standardly. Then, at the end of the month, I'm in London for a couple of days, mainly to attend an awards ceremony. It's not the sort of thing I normally do, except in this case, I was one of the nominees. It's the Traverse Creator Awards. Traverse are the organisation that put on the travel blogger conferences that I've been to before, and which I mentioned in a couple of my very early episodes. The conference in 2018 was where I finally kick-started the idea for this podcast, in fact. But yes, I'm in the running for Best Opinion piece for my slightly quirky yet still highly informative post-pod on the history of apartheid in South Africa. It feels weird to have been nominated for that post, given that I'm not South African, although it is one of the most popular on my blog. I'm just amazed still to have been nominated, to be honest. It's gratifying to know that people out there like what I do enough to feel it deserves to be in the running for an award. Bear in mind this wasn't an award chosen by public vote. The nominations for these awards are chosen by the Traverse Committee themselves. After that, I am going up to visit my mother for the first time in... Yeah, possibly still at my old job when I last saw her, to be honest. It was that long ago. I don't think I had the podcast. My aim is to get my stepdad to record something about his life for a future episode, actually, as I think it'll be an interesting topic. Anyway... October is quite the month for awareness and recognition days and weeks, some UK-specific, some USA-specific, but still worth noticing, and some worldwide. During the course of this month, we have Pronouns Day, 
Dyspraxia Awareness Week, Mental Health Awareness Day, Coming Out Day, and Asexuality Awareness Week. And in some or all regions of the world, it is LGBT History Month and ADHD Awareness Month. It therefore seemed fitting that I make an episode or two that cover some of these topics and talk about mental health, sexuality and general self-awareness. As this is such a large scope, and there's two overall aspects to it, sexuality and gender identity, and neurodiversity issues, it makes sense to split this into two separate podcast episodes. And given that this pod is released in Dysfracture Awareness Week, it makes sense to talk about neurodiversity first. The two neurodiversity issues I most identify with are ADHD and dyspraxia, and there's a large overlap between them. To be honest, there's a large overlap between a lot of the neurodiversity conditions, but that's largely because most psychologists have concentrated primarily on autism, and most neurodiversities have a large overlap with that. One of the interesting questions this brings up is whether in fact they are separate conditions at all, or merely different ways in which the same, unnamed condition manifests and presents itself. What's interesting in my case is that when I've done online tests, etc. for autism, I come out as having a very strong likelihood of being autistic. But when I look into symptoms and recognised behaviours, every single one of them that I have overlaps with ADHD, and I have almost no symptoms of autism that don't. Someone who has been diagnosed with autism is my friend Kira, who here talks about their realisations and discovery of their neurodiversities. As far as um, mental health and autism goes, oh my God! I mean, my mental health has been rapidly declining <laughs> since I was about 15 um, because, you know, shit happens, is the way I put it. Shit happens. We don't need to go into a tragic backstory, but, you know, shit happens that makes you realise that not everything's okay. Uh, the first instant of a full-blown panic attack, anxiety attack I ever had, I was like 16 and doesn't matter about the circumstances that brought it on not going to talk about that but what it was was not understanding at 16 what it was and people around you not understanding what it was either because not all panic attacks look like they do on tv with the heavy breathing into a bag and bent over and you find in 15 minutes and it's like oh my god what was that no right this shit lasted for months i felt so ill i couldn't get out of bed i was convinced i was dying i, I kept begging the doctors to do tests and mris and everything but yeah, it was just kind of like, that was my first indoctrination in it and nobody understanding what it was and it was bad and it scared the living hell out of me. So eventually when I got diagnosed, I was probably about somewhere between 19 and 21 when I got diagnosed with depression and anxiety and stuff like that. And they had better understanding and there was medication and you just kind of learn to plod along and that sort of thing. You learn different coping mechanisms for every different person. As far as autism went, that, for me, went undiagnosed for a long time, which is actually quite odd because it runs in my family. And it was picked up on in my, brother, uh, my, yeah, my brother's children. And he has ADHD. My brother himself has ADHD. And autism was picked up on in his children. But for me, nobody noticed. And it was more because I learned very quickly that um, to, to mimic and, and behave like the people around me. And I didn't realise any of that was to do with autism. I did not realise that. I did not realise that the way that I see things, particularly when I try and figure out the logic behind things. And the first time I've realised this was actually arguing with a racist, strangely enough. When I was just sort of, I can't... He, he said something, I'm not going to go through the whole tirade, but he said something and at the end of it he said, you should try putting yourself in my shoes and seeing things my way. 
And I just physically couldn't do it because I'm just sat there going, I, I don't, I can't understand. I can't, I cannot understand racism at all. I can't, I can't do it. I can't understand where you're coming from. There's no, because to me, logically, it doesn't make sense. What you're saying to me is the person of this, that the, this person's color of skin is bad. And I can't logically get behind that because there's, there's nothing, there's nothing there. There's no logic to grasp to. And I thought this was simple for all human beings. I was like, if if I think like this, there's got to be other people that think like this. So how do people like that exist? How is that possible? What's wrong with them? I never thought of it as there's something wrong with me. I thought there's something wrong with them, which I still stand by to this day because there is something very wrong with racists, but that's a whole different box of frogs. But that was the first time I realised it. I don't think like everybody else. At this early point, I must say I've never been diagnosed with any of these conditions by a medical professional. There are two reasons for this. Firstly, and most importantly, it's because of my age. And by that, I don't mean that I'm too old to be diagnosed, although one of my personal issues is a fear that I'll walk into a doctor's surgery, raise the possibility, and be promptly left out of the building because only children have that. My therapist, and I'll talk more about that later, has said these days that sort of thing simply doesn't happen, but I'm still wary. Now, what I mean is, given that neurodiversity issues are most commonly seen in children as they develop, they're easier to spot, which is fine if you know what you're looking for. In addition, I've also never been diagnosed with them because, as a nation, mental health isn't as strongly advocated for as physical health, which means that provisions for it are far less. Like, I love the concept of the NHS, I think it's a really great idea, but years of underfunding by centre-right governments that promote the idea of individualism and libertarianism, and yes, Tony Blair, I count you in that too, means that it doesn't have quite the financial resources to cater to everybody equally. And naturally, they choose to spend more in areas more... hmm, I guess there's more votes in heart attacks and broken legs. What this means is a choice. Diagnosis and medication is available in the NHS if you're willing to wait a couple of years. Or you can go private and get a diagnosis in reasonably good time, but at a cost of up to £1,000. And for most people, that's simply out of reach. I need to have a conversation with my VA about whether the additional content creativity I'd get dosed out with my eyeballs on Adderall will bring in more money than the cost of getting it. It's hard to say, especially as I don't know what effect it'll have on me anyway. I'd be loath to spend that amount of money on something that, well, doesn't work. What I need, really, is a parent with an ADHD-diagnosed child who can <clears throat> slip me some surreptitiously. Oh, which is, of course, illegal, so I'm not going to condemn this. Here in the UK, Adderall is regarded as an amphetamine-derived product and therefore listed as a Class B drug. The maximum penalty for unauthorised possession is five years in prison and an unlimited fine. The maximum penalty for illegal supply is 14 years in prison and an unlimited fine. And I cannot, of course, advocate any of my friends being caught breaking the law just to satisfy my scientific curiosity. The line between lawful good and chaotic good is quite a nebulous one. Anyway... The fullest of symptoms and whatnot for all of these neurodiversity issues I believe I have is out of scope for this podcast. And just be aware that anyone who's met me is pretty sure of my qualifications within a handful of minutes. The rationale behind this podcast episode is more about my coming to terms with them and how I reacted to them and how I thought I had them. But what I want to do then is give a bit of background. See, when I was a child, neurodiversity didn't exist. ADHD just wasn't a thing. You just had hyperactive kids, and naughty kids, and lazy kids. I don't know if it was a fear in society of personal expression, or a belief amongst schools and parents that if you were awkward, then that was a failing on their part, 
or if it was just a desire, nay, a need for conformity, in the same way that Victorian schoolchildren were forced to write with their right hand, because that was the way it was done. But there was far less tolerance and time for natural variation than there is now. Children like us were branded as difficult, and therefore had to be controlled, punished for transgressions, left open to criticism from our peers. In addition, I was the archetypal gifted kid. Not child genius standard, but certainly pushing well above my weight. I was, in my primary school's chess team, for NB's sake. That a state-run primary school within the boundaries of Liverpool City Council had a chess team is Billy Elliot levels of cultural optimism, but there we go. Partly because of this, and partly because my grandmother had delusions of grandeur, I went to a privately educated secondary school, with the general expectation it would keep me rising, as opposed to having my head shoved down a flushing toilet at the local comprehensive because I'd be the loner nerd. Which probably also means my grandmother knew nothing about private schools. But maybe being pegged is acceptable if the pegger talks to you in Latin while he does so. Penetrabo te in culus, as they don't say in Rome, but possibly in Eton or Harrow. However, I quickly saw a flaw in the plan. I knew that to be consistently up with the best, I'd have to work hard, and probably fail, at things I wasn't interested in and had no aptitude for. And let's be honest, I didn't like failing even then. I mean, who does? There was another problem, and with hindsight one more pertinent to this podcast episode. The reason I was seen as a gifted kid was because, compared to my peer group, I was quite a high flyer. My reading age was pretty above average, and in English lessons the teacher just used to let me get on with reading so she could concentrate on the other kids who needed more help. My math skills were also much higher than the rest of the class, and so I stood out to my teachers. It appeared that I found things too easy. The problem came when things got hard. Because I was so used to being ahead of the game, that expectation was set that I would always be that way, whereas in truth I just... I guess I developed quickly, which is odd considering I was one of the youngest in the school year. So when things got harder, in early teens, when I had to work more, I suddenly found myself slipping down, failing, and not understanding why, not quite grasping how everybody else was able to do things without apparent difficulty, and I, who had never been taught how to ask for help, suddenly found myself in a position where I truly believed I just wasn't very good at anything, and that my entire childhood had been a lie, and that I had been, effectively, an imposter. These issues combined in my evidently highly logical, but slightly warped, teenage brain, and I concluded the only safe solution was to be consistently average. To be middle-ranking, to not excel at anything, lest I be expected to excel at everything and fail. And, being honest, have to do more work than I felt comfortable with. And yet also not coming bottom at anything and revealing myself to be the failure that I undoubtedly was. Did it work? I mean, I achieved everything I wanted to do, but it probably changed my entire work ethic. Knowing that you can achieve more but not seeing the point because being average is good enough. It doesn't set expectations and it makes you less likely to be seen to fail. And of course now, success scares me because I'm not used to it, because I still do everything averagely. I still only do just enough to get by. I know that one day someone will finally notice I'm not as good as they think or that I'm not trying. In the last couple of years, I learned that imposter syndrome is very common amongst gifted kids, especially those with ADHD. Hmm. And in related news, I've always found it very hard to take up a new hobby or learn something different, because in my head, I want to be good at it. I'm good at it immediately. If I'm not good at it, I fiddle a bit and then give up on it. Partly it's because I don't want. Want? 
to expand the effort on learning if I feel I won't be very good at it regardless, because I don't want to commit to something I'll fail at. So consequently, I end up doing very little. It just feels like a waste of time, money and resources to even try, most of the time. It's why, despite my best intentions, I can't speak Spanish, nor why my fantasy adventure novel has ever been completed. To be precise, it's a problem of self-development and motivation. Essentially, it's accountability. Like, without someone pushing me to do it, it becomes one of those things that I just let lie. I give up on, because shinier and easier things appear in my life. Things that require less effort, but also less risk. The ability to fail to speak Spanish is quite high, and therefore my brain would rather do something that's easier, less taxing on the brain, and that's something that doesn't require effort. Like Twitter, or reading endless Wikipedia articles until 2.30am with about 14 tabs open because every time I see a blue link to something I don't know or want to know more about, I click it to open it in a new tab. I have the same problem on the TV Tropes website, and it's exactly the reason I've never been to Reddit, because I know exactly what would happen if I did. And interestingly, this is the main reason, there are large gaps in my podcast schedule. 46 episodes in three and a half years, and an average of... Uh, just over three and a half weeks per episode. When I first started, I tried to do it weekly. That didn't last long at all. That said, it is notable that of all the things I've started in my life, this podcast is one of the few that I've persevered with, despite the gaps and despite my issues. Someone else who has ADHD, but was diagnosed at an early age because she's both younger and lives in a culture where it seems to be more attuned for, is my friend Dana, who here talks about how it was picked up in her and how it affects her in everyday life now. So I was diagnosed as Attention Deficit Disorder, ADD, back in the early 90s, uh, because at the time, ADD and ADHD were under two different umbrellas. From what I understand, I think in the 2000s, ADD was squooshed under ADHD, and it's ADHD uh, and attentive. But I was diagnosed with ADD in the third grade. My teacher, Miss Thomas, had clued in my parents. She had seen several things in class. One thing in particular was oversharing. I don't remember this uh, happening, but my mom told me the story. Apparently, around Christmas time, we were all taking a test in class, working quietly. I raised my hand. Miss Thomas thought I had a question. And no, I had the sudden urge to let her and the rest of my classmates know that my father had Santa on his boxers. So, uh, yeah, she recommended to my parents that uh, they might want to look into getting me tested. And I was. And then I got the diagnosis. And my mom said it was one of the best things that happened. Because it explained so much about my behavior. And it made things kind of easier for my parents, at least, to understand why I acted how I acted. An example is, uh, choices for me are hard. Making a choice, a decision on something, is incredibly hard. Still kind of is. I've gotten a lot better at it. But my mom, we'd be at the store. She'd be like, you know what? You've been really good. You can have either a coloring book, activity book, or a paper doll book. And I would literally have a crying meltdown in the middle of the store because I couldn't decide. And the decision felt so big. And then, of course, because I'm having a crying meltdown over picking out a book, my mom would just be like, you know what, never mind, let's go home. So (laughs) 
it, it helped explain a lot of that for my parents, which made my life a little bit easier um, when I was younger. It, I'm still sometimes coming to grips with having ADHD. When I'm in the middle of a meltdown, and I know when it's happening, I get very frustrated, I get very upset, and typically I start to cry. That's just how it goes. On top of being upset about whatever I'm upset about, I will then further get upset because logically I know that the way I'm reacting is ridiculous and over the top and overblown and it is not that big of a goddamn deal. And that then further pushes the uh, meltdown because I'm also incredibly frustrated with myself. An example would be, I remember crying in the bathroom at work because uh, me and my partner had plans to go to LARP, uh, live action real play. But he was like, hey, like there's this other cool thing happening Friday night. Do we want to skip Friday LARP and go to this thing? And I had to make a decision. And as I said, decisions are super duper hard. So I'm crying in the bathroom at work <laughs> over deciding whether or not to do something that is fun and that I want to do. And then also crying because why is my brain so goddamn broken? I am so frustrated with myself over this. And I've been working the last few years on just accepting that my brain's not broken. My brain's never been broken. This is just how my brain is. This is how it came off the manufacturing floor. So it's been more of an acceptance thing with myself, I would say, the last 10 years or so. And it gets really frustrating talking to people. Because I've been a lot more vocal about saying I'm ADHD and this is the shit that comes with it. And then I'll get people like, oh, you're, that can't be right. You're not ADHD. I don't see X, Y, and Z. And it's like, yeah, because not all of us present that way. And that's okay. I don't have to fit a specific box to have my diagnosis. I have it. I've had it for like a long time, 30 some odd years. So, yeah, it's been my constant companion, and as much as I rebelled against it in my teens, I stopped taking medication for it in my sophomore year of high school, and I've mostly been off medication. I have my own coping mechanisms. I went on briefly in my early 30s to deal with some work stuff, but had to stop because my blood pressure had taken a major spike, and we were trying to rule out what was causing it, so. But I self-medicate with caffeine. So a cup of coffee in the morning, cup of coffee in the afternoon when I'm working, and um, it's manageable. It's interesting, by the way, that she says she self-medicates with caffeine. I've definitely heard several people not just say this, but indeed cite it in scientific research. And it makes sense, as ADHD medication is often based on amphetamine, which is generally a stimulant, and caffeine has similar effects. It's always made me wonder if ADHD-like symptoms aren't in reality far more common than they seem to be. Just the average population self-medicates with coffee without actually realising or knowing, and thus they don't see anything amiss. I, unfortunately, hate coffee. The taste, the smell, the everything. And I've tended to avoid most caffeine-filled soft drinks these days. Gone are the days when I'd have three 500ml bottles of Coca-Cola a night when I was on night shift in one of my first jobs in the firm I used to work for. Except Iron Brew. This isn't just because I live in Scotland, by the way. I've always been fond of the stuff, but I do have it rarely. Since I've been up here, it's been maybe twice a week, whereas previously it was around twice a year. 
I am fully aware that this, by the way, is feels like it's becoming a kind of therapy session. In fact, on that note, I need to say that therapy, again, this is a belief that was much more prevalent when I was growing up and it's, you know, it's more accepted now. It's one of those things that always felt like you only did if you'd failed, like it was almost the last resort. And if you were in therapy, it meant you were pretty much mad as a hatter or suicidal. It just had a bad vibe about it. Additionally, of course, there's the whole toxic masculinity aspect. Men, especially, don't go to therapy anywhere near as much as they ought to do because it's seen as weak by their, our peers. Like, if you admit to going to a therapist, you're seen as less of a man and you're too emotional, you're not strong enough, and therefore obviously then a target for criticism and bullying from the patriarchy. But I'd like to say on record now that more people should have therapy, especially men as the more men who are allowed to think inwardly like this, the less they'll follow blindly the patriarchal society. More people should have easy access to therapy, and society needs to accept that going to therapy should be as normal for your mental health as regular checkups with your doctor are for physical health. The powers that therapy provide are wonderful. I've had sessions with my therapist for almost exactly a year now, and while these days it does feel often like I'm just checking in rather than having anything fundamental that needs to be discussed and worked through, I've only managed to get to that stage because I've had those deep conversations with them about things that, you know, I'll be honest, sometimes have never occurred to me until they've encouraged me to think about them. Certainly I'm a lot more self-confident, and people have noticed this, and I'm a lot more comfortable with who I am. Obviously there's things that will never be truly fixed, but the point is not to be perfect. The point is to know who you are enough so you know why and how to work with those experiences, rather than be subsumed by them. Certainly now I'm a lot more in control of my feelings and my thoughts, and I understand myself much better than I did when I started, and all of this makes me a much happier and contented person in general. Here's Kate Frankie from This Could Lead to Anywhere, talking about her experience of therapy and the advantages of being open about mental health. I don't know whether we are at the stage of being open about mental health and it being something that doesn't have a stigma, which is really upsetting. I think in the workplace in particular, you have to really think about whether you're going to disclose that. I do now because I want that to be a culture that we have. But it is really hard to be open about your mental health. And I think coming out with that piece of information, which is part of who you are. So my anxiety, for example, is part of who I am. And it's what I've lived with for a lot of years now. I think that should be a second nature kind of thing. But it really isn't. And it does hold a lot of people back. I've worked with people who have mental health disorders and who struggle with it more than I do and then I've worked with other people that potentially have something or or don't but decide not to talk about it at all and just steer clear of mental health conversations and I think this is something that needs to change. I think with friends and with family it should be something that you can be open about. But again, I know of a variety of different reactions, I suppose, to mental health conversations. So we're still not there as a society, I don't think. And I really want to see people being open. I'm quite open even on social media. I'll talk about it at work. My family know, my friends are aware. 
And when I've tracked it back in therapy with a counsellor, I've dealt with anxiety since I was about eight years old that I can remember. So it's definitely been a part of my life. And it's something that because I know I can prepare, I can use coping strategies, I know the things that are going to like really trigger me. I know what I need to deal with them positively. And I can catch myself if I am starting to feel really anxious and not deal with it well. And I can change that. So I think being open actually can massively improve your mental health and the way that you deal with the more negative days that you can have. And everyone has mental health, so that's the the kind of thing. If it was physical health, if it was that you were feeling really run down or say you broke your leg, it's that thing of you would always go and get checked out. But we just don't have the same reaction or thing built into our culture around mental health that we need to take care of that just as much. But I really want to get to a point where we are much more open and people can come out about their mental health and talk about the times that are much more difficult. And collectively, as a society, move on, move forward and move more positively to a place where this is not a barrier and where there isn't stigma. Therapy can't really assist with the practical aspects of neurodiversity, though it does provide a vent through which you can learn about how they affect you. One way it does this is to encourage you to join the dots, to remember all manner of different things, both past and present, and make the connections between them, because everything is all in one place, one conversation. And in a sense, that's what I do also on these pods, on my blogs, and especially when talking to friends just as much as, if not more than, with my therapist. One such aspect here is dyspraxia. And since it's Dyspraxia Week, this seems a good time to talk about it. It's something you already know about me, but I want to talk here about how things in my background now make sense given what I know. But first, what is dyspraxia? Well, it's a word derived from the Greek ill or bad activity, and it's the shorthand for a condition known as Developmental Coordination Disorder, or DCD. Simply put, it's a condition where messages sent by the brain to the rest of the body, especially with regard to information around location and movement, known as motor functions, are, in computer parlance, sometimes corrupted. A bit like, you know, seeing a pixelated image rather than a high-res one. It's believed that around 5-6% to of the population are affected by it, though as it's only commonly picked up in childhood, that figure might be higher. The upshot of this is that dyspraxic often has issues defining their place in space-time. We lack much spatial awareness, which is a fancy way of saying that we bump into things. And that's often as far as people assume dyspraxia goes. In fact, one word often used to dismiss dyspraxia is clumsiness. And that's exactly how it was described when I was a child. It wasn't a fancy neurological condition. It was just all my fault for not paying attention. Yeah, if only it were that simple. See, it's much more than bumping and tripping, although my issues around that are very well attested, to the point where even I'm surprised my little toes are still, you know, attached, never mind functional. As dyspraxia concerns motor functions, pretty much anything that involves movement is something we struggle with, to a greater or lesser degree. For me, personally, with hindsight anyway, dyspraxia is the primary reason I can neither drive nor ride a bike. The latter is largely a combination of not being able to balance properly on it, coupled with my brain not being able to register how to move my feet on the pedals at the same time. 
A friend of mine tried to teach me to ride a bike a few years back, as I said it would be really useful for me to learn while I was travelling, you know, hiring a bike to go exploring around the local areas or large historic sites, etc. After 40 minutes, she had to give up because she was laughing too much. And to be honest, I kind of have to laugh along with it, otherwise it would frustrate me immensely. The former, driving, though, is a lot more serious. I took driving lessons in my mid-twenties at the behest of my then-girlfriend, but I found them really difficult. In total, I must have had maybe 40 or 50. I was close to being put forward for my driving test, but I just realised I wasn't exactly confident that I was safe. I mean, there was one incident I remember when I looked in my mirrors to pull out onto a major road, saw nothing coming, so I moved, and then nearly hit a car in the lane, which, as far as my brain was concerned, had materialised out of nowhere. Another time I was waiting in a filter lane to turn right, crossing traffic, and it took me far longer than it needed to because I couldn't easily judge how fast the cars were coming at me, nor could I judge how far away they were, so I stayed waiting until the road was free, despite the fact that I could see quite a long way down that road. I didn't realise it then, but both of those issues are classic dyspraxia. We also have trouble following directions for things like dance moves or building furniture, in my case especially if those instructions are drawings on paper. I have to watch someone do them first, and even then slowly and repeatedly until they work for me. Unfortunately, my probable ADHD means I find it hard to concentrate long enough when I have to do this, so I end up giving up. YouTube is not my friend. Case in point, the first time I put up my new camping tent in preparation for my big hike, it was a complete disaster. In addition, there's a festival I often volunteer at that has dance workshops, everything from Charleston to Zumba, Bollywood to Capoeira. The only one that I found I had any capability for was Bollywood, because that was the only one that didn't involve too many quick and sudden movements. I had time to process what was going on and see where all my limbs needed to go. As a side note, this also has implications in other aspects of my life, including an inability to wield rope. Full Swap Radio listeners will now understand why I definitely describe myself as a bunny and not a rigger. Many people with dyspraxia have terrible handwriting. I'm on record as saying that there's no point in learning cursive writing outside of artistic endeavour because it's illogical to have writing that takes time to process and read. I wonder how much of that is my own dyspraxia not being able to distinguish where the letters are. Certainly when I write I have to do so in printed letters because otherwise it's completely illegible as opposed to partially illegible. Giving me blank paper is a recipe for slanted sentences. This was the case even growing up. The teachers at my primary school gave up insisting I wrote in cursive when faced with it. I preferred to type rather than write. Even in the 1990s, when I had many pen pals, I had a tendency to type my letters on a computer rather than write them out by hand. Partly this was because I type quicker than I write, but a large part of it was because I knew my writing wasn't particularly legible, and writing for long periods also hurt the muscle on my palm, the one just below my thumb. My research into dyspraxia also suggests that people with the condition tend to hold their pens incorrectly, something that I was always pulled up for at school. This may be related. And obviously, classic art is out of the question. I once tried to draw a spider falling off a table. My school friends suggested it looked more like a lorry or truck having run over something that, given that it had been run over by a truck, was more or less unidentifiable. Another issue I had at school that, with hindsight, should have been an indicator of dyspraxia, was during maths lessons. Now, mathematics was one of my better subjects, but I never managed to get a handle on geometry. 
This includes things like rotation and reflection of shapes, but also creating and building them from drawings. For instance, you know those, um, here's a skeleton of a cube drawn on a piece of paper, and here's a line on one of the squares that make the cube up. What square does the line go on to if the cube was built? Those types of questions. I have to physically build the cube to answer that. I cannot visualise the shape in three dimensions. It's the same with any kind of layout. I find it hard to see in my mind what something looks like for real if it's drawn. Indeed, even in the real world, I find it hard to judge where anything is if I can't see it, including the layout of my own flat. I had to physically walk through it and stand at various points to work out what was on the other side of my bedroom walls because I couldn't do it in my head. Even then, I still have trouble working out how each room faces in the direction it does without literally being in it. And I've no chance with visualising the neighbouring flats. I don't have the vision to create and manipulate objects in three dimensions in my mind. There's also the issue, and it's kind of related, to do with sports. I I can run, but that's about it. I have trouble doing any sport that requires any degree of coordination. I mean, I can catch a ball, sure, and I can kick one, but that's about my limit. I can't easily judge where I'm hitting or kicking a ball, nor how far I need to make it go. Golf is completely off my radar. And if I have to do something more complicated than simply releasing it, I kind of fall apart. Pretty much everything from javelin to cricket, field hockey to table tennis. It's fun for the audience to watch, at least. And of course, even running events have to be flat. I tried the 3,000 metre steeplechase a couple of times at school, but I had to stop and step over every barrier because I simply couldn't judge its height to jump it. That said, in one of the races, I still finished third out of five, a lap behind second and a lap ahead of fourth. It was a very niche event. Anyway, all these points I only realised in hindsight. I'd never heard the word dyspraxia until, on my hike across Great Britain in the summer of 2019, I was chatting with one of my hiking partner, Becky's friends, about my trials and tribulations, both on the hike and in general, and she wondered if I was dyspraxic. I didn't know, but when I did some research on it a few days later and told Becky what the symptoms were, she burst into laughter at the third one and said to me that I probably didn't need to read any further. You can see a theme developing here. Given that I've never been diagnosed with dyspraxia, and indeed... As I say, I'd never heard the word until a few years ago. You might wonder how I've coped with what from the outside appears to be a combination of clumsiness and a lack of attention. Well, I've developed masking strategies to deal with it. These include having to concentrate very hard when doing something requiring careful movement. The trouble is this tends to make me more tired and irritable, so I enjoy it less. I've had this happen a couple of times when hiking, when a combination of terrain and weather has meant I've had to think so hard about each footstep that I've not liked the hike itself. Related to this, I've also had issues going down hills because I'm so acutely aware of the ability of either tripping over my own feet, tripping over the edge of the hill, or just gravity taking its toll and me rolling down, that I can go down hills very, very slowly, which is awkward when you're hiking the Pennine Way. Most of the time, though, my strategies for dealing with dyspraxia are to avoid situations where issues might occur in the first place. For example, not driving or cycling, not putting myself into situations where I'm reliant on movement or following pictorial instructions for the safety of myself or others. I'm very scared of the duties of being in the exit row seats on aeroplanes, even though I try to take them wherever possible for the legroom. It's also about making sure I have enough space around me to move comfortably without fear of impacts, although I'm not at the stage yet of covering my table legs with padding. You might be more responsible. I also avoid using dangerous implements, and I get other people to, for example, do my DIY. 
My friends know better than to let me use power tools, especially saws and drills. You would have thought wearing shoes would be a good way to prevent many dyspraxia-related incidents. You'd be right. The problem with dyspraxia in a medical sense is, unlike other aspects of neurodiversity, and most notably ADHD, dyspraxia isn't something you can deal with through medication. There isn't a magic pill that suddenly gives you a plus four to perception, although it's interestingly it's believed that some 50% of dyspraxics do have ADHD. This makes it, certainly at my age, a less important to get a diagnosis, since there isn't a great deal anyone can do about it. It simply becomes one of those, give me three interesting facts about yourself, and even then, because it's a lesser understood neurological condition, people either leave you strangely, or they dismiss you as per earlier comments. I can see it helping children, since it then becomes a concept that they can give to school teachers, etc., to ensure a safer and more understanding classroom. Oh, Billy, I don't think you should be climbing that A-frame. Oh, Sue, yes, I'll give you extra time on your maths homework. But in an adult environment, it just becomes one of self-awareness and self-mitigation. Anyway, dyspraxia, in conclusion, is a condition that affects movement and spatial awareness and whose symptoms have a knock-on effect in everyday life. It is a disability in terms of it affects your ability to do things, but as with many of these conditions, knowledge is power, and an awareness of what you're capable and not capable of is a great first step to managing it. It's a part of who I am, and I've learnt the best way of coping is to treat it with good humour, to make jokes about it, to take ownership of it, as it were. It's something I'm always aware of, but I don't let it stop me doing the things I like to do, you know, like hiking barefoot over Kinder Scout. I'm just acutely aware of the dangers it brings, like breaking my toes. Masking and mitigation, be it for dyspraxia, ADHD, autism or any other neurodiversity, is something that's long developed and hard to get past, but also sometimes necessary. Here's Kira again, talking about how they have masks, both willingly and unwillingly, that are part of their autism. I think the hardest part of it all is learning to unmask, learning to no longer be who people have told you you should be or what they've told you you should be but trying to be yourself and trying to take the mask off. And when you've had it for such a long time, like I have, because as they say, autism is something that you are born with. It doesn't just appear and it doesn't just go away. I've obviously been in doctrine since day one to not behave like that. And then there are obvious signs of my childhood. Like when I was a baby, I used to love sitting in a bouncer chair and I would bounce up and down and rip up paper and only watch adverts. I couldn't watch TV shows, but I could watch adverts because they were short and bright and flashy. Like That's an obvious sign right there. But again, back in the 90s, wasn't such a big thing. So, yeah, I would say the hardest part of it is trying to come to terms with the fact that you have to unmask and you have to let shit go. And you have to try and sort of almost rediscover yourself. I'm still learning now. I'm still learning now and I'm still trying to be somewhat acceptable and then not when I can and can't be myself, if you will. Um, So, you know, anything to do with my daughter, I've got to put on that mask. I've got to be the presentable mum and all that kind of thing. When really all I want to do is scream and shout and get out of the sports hall because it's too crowded and I can hear somebody breathing and it's just irritating me. But you can't do that. So, yeah, it's kind of having to learn to... um, mask in society but not around you know your home life and stuff like that it can be very difficult and I'm still coming to terms with it myself and I've had a lot of people doubt me as well a lot of people go that's not autism you're not autistic if you were they would have found out by now well everyone's a little bit autistic aren't they no no they're not no no that's not how it works okay you know it's hard 
But I promise you it gets a lot better. It gets a lot better when you start to accept yourself for who you are rather than pretending to be somebody else. While I've spoken a bit about how I've realised my neurodiversities and how I cope with them, what I do want to talk a little about before I finish this episode is more about the specific concept of coming out with them, both to myself and to other people. It's one thing to realise what you are, but it's a whole different kettle of onions to accept it. Dyspraxia is a bit of an odd one in the sense that, as I say, I discovered the word so late in life, I never really had any negative associations with it, nor any preconceived ideas about it. Coming out to myself as a dyspraxic was actually pretty easy. It was simply realising there was a word that existed that accurately described how I felt, or more accurately, I guess, how I acted. I didn't feel I had to do any mental gymnastics or soul-searching to accept the word or the description. In fact, it was quite gratifying to know that the issues I had weren't just me, and that I wasn't just... I never described my inabilities in a negative way. I always took them as being a part of me, one of those things that made me quirky. But I did worry that maybe there was something wrong with me, that I was missing something that pretty much everybody else had. Like that whole previously gifted kid thing, as if there was something I hadn't been taught or paying attention to when everyone else was, well, you know, learning about how to move, I guess. It just meant that everyone else suddenly jumped ahead of me in terms of abilities and intelligence. But knowing that it wasn't just me, that enough other people had the same issues, the same disabilities, made me more able to talk about it in a way that other people had a reference point for. Writing that paragraph has made me wonder if dyspraxia is an inability or a disability. And to be honest, I still don't really know. Like, I have an inability to do things that other people can do, not just easily, but as an everyday thing that they don't even need to think about. But does that make me disabled? Maybe it's the same thing as needing glasses. Technically, I require an aid to help me function to a standard level in society in the same way that people with mobility issues need sticks or wheelchairs. But I wouldn't call people who wear glasses disabled. Maybe it's a cultural or societal thing. The UK's Equality Act 2010 defines being disabled as if you have a physical or mental impairment that has a substantial and long-term negative effect on your ability to do normal daily activities. It would never occur to me to tick the box on forms asking, do you have a disability? But does my dyspraxia have a substantial negative effect? Certainly provable to long term. Does my ADHD? Does it matter if I'm not diagnosed with either? I'd be very reluctant to because neither are what I would traditionally think of when I imagine a disability. But is that my bad? Should I? Is part of my coming out with neurodiversity issues to come out as disabled? This is a very weird thought and I may have to ponder this for a while. I don't know how I feel about this. ADHD itself is a whole different barrel of dynamite, simply because of the negative associations. People think they know what ADHD is and what it looks like, and it's never really looked on accurate or gentle terms. I have a couple of decades of baggage in my own mind about it, because that's just the way cultural portrayals, representations of and references to it have been throughout my life. So when it comes to my own coming out to myself with the possibility, let me admit something. Back in 2004, I started dating a friend of mine. It was a long-distance relationship. She's American, and in fact, you heard from her earlier. Anyway, one of the first things she said to me when we met was, oh, by the way, I have ADHD. And my first instant thought was, oh, that means she's a bit weird. That means this is going to be hard. In fact, I did seem to think of it then, not as a mental disability, but certainly as a bit of dysfunction. Uh, something is wrong with this woman. How will this affect our relationship? Will I cope with it well? Of course, it turns out that it was absolutely fine and I genuinely never noticed. And with hindsight, there may have been reasons for my not noticing, of course. 
Obviously, the more I learned about what ADHD was and what it wasn't, the more I realised that it wasn't something weird and scary, but in fact, perfectly normal. Indeed, rather too normal. So by the time my Instagram Explore tab was full of memes that were screenshots from Tumblr about ADHD and I was finding them all relatable, I was probably pretty much accepting of the likelihood of it. How did that make me feel? Honestly, I don't really know. I don't really remember there being a tipping point, a moment where I felt, ah, well, that's what it is then. It was just a gradual realisation and acceptance. I don't think I ever came out to myself as ADHD. It just kind of happened slowly. Once I knew and understood and felt connected to the term, I was more than happy to run with it. As even if I'd never been diagnosed, it was the simplest and easiest reference point to describe the way I was. I was like, you know what ADHD is? I'm kind of like that. It made myself easier to explain, especially to myself. I would talk about coming out to other people, but I kind of, again, never did. Not properly. I never sat down with my parents or friends and said, I have something to tell you. With dyspraxia, it's a bit harder because few people know what it means, but with ADHD, it's more like, maybe I never felt I needed to, because by the time I realised that's what it was, I uh, guess it didn't matter as much. Most people I knew had known me for so long and knew my habits that it probably wouldn't have made any difference to them. Indeed, they may already have guessed themselves if they'd done any research about it independently. And certainly, at least one of my friends has said that I am the poster child for ADHD, so, you know. I've put both in my social media bios, and I've certainly referred to both in status updates, etc. But I've never had a dedicated discussion about them. Well, until now, I guess. And I know my mother listens to my pods. Well, that's about all for this pod. Join me next time when I talk more about the subject of coming out. But then it'll be the more traditional definition, all about coming out to yourself around sexual and gender orientations. Until then, protect your toes because they're very important. And if you're feeling off colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Glasgow studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass Bonus by Kai Angel, which is available by the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot, or you can email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. The podcast has a Facebook group at travel.tales.beyond.brochure and I have a Patreon for access to rare extra content. That's patreon.com slash traveltalesbeyondbrochurepod. Until next time, have safe journeys. Bye for now. (laughs) 